motion, the sultan of speed, the wizard of whizzle, yes indeed. Go from here to China in a no time flat, beat the speed of light and you can't beat that. A flash, a flash, a flash, meet the mighty flash, a flash, in a fight he'll smash, crash, smash a whole gang of crooks or schnooks. Hey, he'll just clobber any kind of bad guy, thief or robber, the world's fastest human, yeah man, the flash. Hello and welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill episode number 134 where we go back, back to, the, to past the past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can subscribe to us via iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and by covering yourself in a solvent that is especially conducive to teleportation, then beaming yourself to our recording session. Uh-huh. That would kind of freak me out, but... A little bit, a little bit. I would, I'd, I'd have to put a shirt on. on. Uh, today we're reading a comic that we think is a lot of fun. It's uh, Flash number 268, cover date December 1978, titled Riddle of the Runaway Comic, published by DC Comics. Story by Carrie Bates, penciler Irv Novick, inker is Frank McLaughlin, uh, letterer Mike Stevens, colors by Gene D'Angelo, edited by Julius Schwartz, and the cover price now is 40 cents. Very proud of that. Actually, I bet... Now, it's probably not 40 cents, is it, Chris? <laughs> but uh, that's what the cover says, so that's what that's what we went with. So, of course, we're going to start with the usual biographies. I'm going to start with uh, the estimable Carrie Bates, born 1948 in Pennsylvania. He began submitting ideas for comic book covers to DC Comics at the age of 13. A number of them were bought and published, the first being the cover to Superman number 167, February 1964, and that was drawn by Kurt Swan. Uh, Bates began to sell stories to DC when he was 17. He started working for DC Comics in 1963 and is best known for his work on such titles as Action Comics, Captain Adam, The Flash, Superboy, and The Legion of Superheroes and Superman. Of interest to this podcast, uh, Bates co created Vartox. Hey. Uh, Infantino returned to the Flash title with uh, issue number 296, April 1981, cover date, and he and Bates collaborated on the series until its cancellation with issue number 350, October 1985, cover date. He became the editor as well as the writer of the Flash title during this time, which was really common at both mm. publishers, actually, uh, and oversaw it until its cancellation until 1985, and yes... That means he wrote and oversaw The Trial of the Flash. He did. Now, his final Superman stories were Trapped in Imp TV. That appeared in Superman number 421, drawn by Kurt Swan. And then Superman for a Day, which appeared in Action Comics number 581. That was drawn by Kurt Schaffenberger, and they were both cover dated July 1986. In 1987 and 88, he wrote some stories for Marvel Comics' New Universe line. He also created the Video Jack series with, at Epic Comics with uh, Keith Giffen. He would be the head scriptwriter on the 1988 through 1992 live-action Superboy television series. Then we jump all the way to 2008, where he returned after a 20-year absence to Marvel, and he wrote True Believers. This was a series, a limited series drawn by Paul Gulacy, uh, about a team trying to uncover secrets in the Marvel Universe. Bates would make a return to writing Superman in an Elseworlds story that was called Superman, colon, The Last Family of Krypton, and that was published in August of 2010. Hop across table, meet Irv Novick. He was born April 11th, 1916. He graduated from the National Academy of Design and began work at Harry H. Hesler's workshop. Novick would become the primary artist for the MLJ Archie superhero line from 1939 to 1946. Then Archie would axe the heroes to focus on their main books, the Archies, the Jughead, stuff like that, and at that point, Irv found himself out of luck. He would shift into advertising and try to get a pair of comic strips off the ground. Those strips were Cynthia and the Scarlet Avenger, and uh, neither of them really had any legs. Did you know if they got any kind of syndication at all, or they just uh, I'm not sure. pitched them around? Yeah. Yeah, they probably whittled away. Anyway, uh, Novick found his way into DC Comics thanks to his friendship with MLJ collaborator Robert Kaniger. He would work on several war and romance comics, and he and Kaniger would work together on a feature that appeared in The Brave and the Bold number 1, August 1955, cover date, which introduced the character The Silent Knight. Irv jumped back into advertising around 1960, joining up with the Johnstone and Cushing Agency. 
That's a company that specialized in comic strip style advertisements who had provided ads for such companies as AT&T, Nestle, and RC Cola. Another notable on that, uh, artist in that stable was Milton Caniff. Or Caniff? Sure. One of those. Uh, that's the... Um, Terry and the Pirates? Terry and the Pirates guy. There you go. Thank you very much. Johnstone <laughs> Cushing closed up shop in 1962, and so it was back to D.C. for Irv. Starting around 1968, Novick would do more superhero work, including books in the Superman family, Batman, and... The Flash, very coincidentally to what we're reading. Uh, Notably, he drew the issue of Batman number 216, November 1969, cover date, where Alfred's last name is revealed as being Pennyworth. Sorry, he would draw the short-lived Denny O'Neill written Joker series as well. Jumping ahead, Novick stuck around with DC until the 1990s when his failing eyesight forced him into retirement. He received the Inkpot Award, or, or an Inkpot Award, in 1995 and passed away on October 15th, 2004. Mm-hmm. Okay, now let's hop right into Flash number 268. The story is called, of course, The Riddle of the Runaway Comic. Now, the cover by Al Milgram and Dick Giordano features the Flash running down a crowded street holding a copy of Flash Comics number 26 from February 1942, uh, cover date, over his head. At this point, he's being tackled by Wildcat, and Alan Scott is trying to anoink the issue out of his hand with a constructed pinchy claw. Now, the copy reads, What amazing secret does a Golden Age comic hold that causes three heroes to fight for its possession? Inside is a similar splash page with even more blustery copy. Yeah, narration reads, What is the most sought-after, most valuable comic book in the world? Action Comics number one. Gymnastics number two? Mm. Before you answer that question... Oops, sorry. Take a look at this Scarlet Speedster, the first in a strange cast of characters who are convinced a certain 35-year-old comic book is worth fighting for. Try, along with The Flash, to solve the riddle of the runaway comic. 35 years. That'd be like us going nuts over a comic that came out in 1984. Yeah, when we were alive. But to be fair, <laughs> uh, the, the first Alan Moore Swamp Thing did hit in 1984. Also the uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, and, of, and, of course, the aforementioned gymnastics. That was a heck of a year, come to think of it. It man. was. <laughs> <laughs> The story proper opens in the bedroom of 12-year-old Barney Sands, a comic book fan and a complete Flash fanatic. He's rustling through his issues, but realizes something is missing. He thinks to himself, where could it be? I'm positive I saw a lion around a couple hours ago. He even checks under his bed. I'd ask Mom to help me look for it. But she'd just give me another lecture on keeping my room neat. Uh, worse yet, she might let it slip that she's been tossing a few of your comics every week because you're getting too old for that sort of thing, Barney. You know what I'm saying? Maybe you want to uh, talk to some... Anyway, uh, we shift seeds over to The Flash, who's having a pretty forgettable little adventure. He's trying to track down a runaway bear named Griselda. He catches up to the Ursine escapee, and the super speed drills a hole in the ground at a construction site, and that'll hold a bear. Right? Sure. I hope so. Yeah. Uh, we hop back to Barney as he's exiting his house, slump-shouldered and defeated. He's also carrying a briefcase, so maybe he did get that talk from his mom about getting too old. Yeah, really. <laughs> get a job, get now. <laughs> now, it turns out that Barney is the next-door neighbor of Barry Allen, who just so happens to be whizzing on past. Yeah, as he does, he thinks to himself, because of my super speed, Barney never saw me flash past him. No, thanks, but uh, we never asked. Yeah, really. Uh, Now, (laughs) Barney approaches Barry's house and rings the bell. Come on in. The door's not locked. I'm in the den. It's really weird reading this with, like, 2019 eyes, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you got to imagine your kid saying, Hey, Dad, I'm going to go read comics with the 35-year-old single dude next door. (laughs) Go ahead, hey, uh, wear, you know, wear your pants or whatever. (laughs) Uh, so Barney heads in and hands over the briefcase, and it was a microscope that he'd borrowed from Barry for help for his biology project, and for which he got an A+. a boy, but uh, he doesn't look all that happy, does he? Barry says, swell, so how come you look unhappy about it? That's because I'm feeling miserable about losing a rare collector's issue. It's over 35 years old, and in good condition, too. Yes, even in 1978, comics enthusiasts were saying things like collector's issue and giving their books grades. (laughs) 
Barry replies, Ouch. As one comic collector to another, I'd know how that much that must hurt. Say, as long as you're here, how'd you like to help me sort out some of these back issues? Come on, dude. Isn't that, isn't that kind of like rubbing it in? Yeah, it's like, now you lost your comic. You I'm lost check your... out my collection. Yeah. <laughs> Peep these out. Uh, now, Barry heads over to his pile, and it's worth noting that none of these are bagged and boarded because, you know, it is 1978. Sure. Uh, however, Barney spies something out of the corner of his eye. Uh, Barney, the issues I need help with are over here. Uh, what is it over there that you don't want the kid to see, Barry? What's going on here? <laughs> Barney goes, I, uh, don't know how to tell you this, Mr. Allen, but I've solved the mystery of my missing comic. What? And then <laughs> Barney holds up a copy of Flash Comics number 26, February 1942, cover date. See? It's right here, in your collection. What? Your magazine here? Yeah, nice try, Alan. I'm not buying it. Uh, Barney confirms that it is, in fact, his copy. Right. Flash Comics number 26, the February 1942 issue. I can tell it's my copy by the tiny fold in the lower right corner. Uh, I thought this was in good condition, Barney. Uh, so much for that eBay listing. I will be leaving it now. Thank you. <laughs> and, and we're not in any position to tell young Master Sands how to keep his comics, but you, you probably don't want to fold the corners, right? If you're collecting them, you know what I mean? Like, if, <laughs> if, if you're making a point, you probably if want to keep them flat. Them. <laughs> exactly. You're obviously aware. So, uh, Barry says, let me take a look at that, Barney. Hmm. This is Flash 26, all right. Yeah, that, that was never in question, Barry. Uh, what we want to know is, why did you steal it from your preteen neighbor? But what's it doing here? I never had a copy. Smooth. It's one of the few flashes that have eluded me, even when I managed to get rarer ones. Dude, now you're competing with a 12-year-old. <laughs> Come Just on. give him his mag back. This really, this I gotta say, Chris, this is almost like identical instances I had in my childhood with people <laughs> where like, they tried to play something off, and I'm like, Come on, dude. Give me my G.I. Joe back or whatever. He's like, but I have more valuable ones anyway. My, my mom <laughs> bought me this one, you know, whatever. <laughs> now, Barry, he continues to circle the wagons a bit. As for how it got from your room to my den, that's a complete mystery to me. You're sure you didn't leave it here on your last visit? Sure and double sure. Then there's a thunderous shout, Barney! And so the kid's got to go home uh, for, for dinner or something. Something or a beating, we're not sure. <laughs> One or the other. Uh, Barry convinced him to leave Flash Comics 26 at his place, so he, uh, I don't know, could try and figure out how it got there. <laughs> Nope, nope, he, he just wants to read it Well, that I can understand, actually Sure Barry says, as long as it's mysteriously popped up in my house I might as well make the most of this opportunity And read it while I have the chance I'm familiar with most of Jay's adventures And Hawkman's and Johnny Thunder's too, but A helpful editor's note ever so briefly tells us all about Earth 2 Yeah, that's why he's mentioning and, those guys Yes And uh, Barry, before he gets a chance to read it The comic itself begins to vanish Good gosh Are my eyes playing tricks on me? Or is Barney's flash issue fading away? It, it's the second one That's what's happening, yeah <laughs> Barry flashes up and figures he'd best follow up on the runaway comic That is the title of the story after all <laughs> Uh, it's not long before he's deduced that teleportation is the reason for the comic jumping from one house to another. Whatever you think will clear your name, pal. Yeah, very con convenient <laughs> teleportation. He thinks to himself, I noticed this ultra-fate radiation trail drifting out of the den, coming into view right after Flash number 26 appeared. Conclusion, incredible as it sounds, the Flash comic book disappeared from my room as well as Barney's by teleportation. Uh-huh. And uh, so the Flash follows this trail all the way to the first annual Central City Comic Con. Wow, we're actually going to a comic convention now. We are. We're becoming real enthusiasts uh, as we read. <laughs> Inside, a few junior wheelers and dealers are trying to strike a trade. Yeah, one kid goes, I'll trade you three of my all-stars for a copy of More Fun. Another kid says, you gotta be crazy, man. No joke. More Fun Comics is responsible for introducing some incredible characters into the DC universe. I gotta be honest, a copy of More Fun in decent condition, that's a pretty sweet hmm. pick. <laughs> this issue is issue 52, introducing the Spectre. You have any idea what this item is worth in hard cash? 
Oh, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> now, the first kid then shifts gears and offers those same three issues of All-Star Comics for... Why? It's that copy of Flash Comics number 20-whatever over there. Flash 26? But I don't own that copy. I don't believe this. I've been thinking about this particular issue all morning. Thinking about how much I've always wanted a copy, and how I've never been able to find one. Wow, the kid must be a really big fan of the Johnny's Messenger Service feature in that issue. You gotta have uh, you know, that's how it is. <laughs> you got to. <laughs> then, Barry Allen approaches. Young man, how much hard cash would it take for you to sell that flash to me? I gotta tell you up front, mister. This issue means a lot to me. It would take plenty to get me to part with it. Just two seconds ago, you didn't realize you had the damn thing. <laughs> this is exactly <laughs> the exact, it, what it's like to buy comics, you know, at a, at a retailer. Exactly. <laughs> now that all-star kid, he's still lurking around, and he's got a little bit of sass to deliver to Mr. Allen himself. Says, he goes, Say, mister, what's your interest in this comic book? You some kind of flash freak? Why, you look, two, two seconds ago, you offered up three issues of All-Star Comics for the thing, right? What the hell's going on here? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a coveted issue, apparently. Yeah. Uh, no, rather than backhanding the brat, Barry takes it all in stride. Yep. Why, I even fantasize by dressing up like the Flash sometimes. Hmm. Let's uh, pop our 2019 eyes back in again. That's pretty creepy, isn't it? I gotta say, that's kind of creepy in any era. Uh, stay, stay away from adults <laughs> that talk about dressing up like the Flash kids. That's not a good idea. Now, the uh, would-be wheeler and dealer decides to cut, cut the Flash freak a break. However, before he can quote him a price, they're interrupted by... Green Lantern and Wildcat! Okay, not really. Wow! Those Golden Age superhero outfits could win you prizes in tomorrow's costume parade. Barry thinks to himself, something about these heroes I don't like. Now the Golden Agers become very aggressive about getting their hands on that copy of Flash Comics number 26. Wildcat says, don't like we tell you, or Green Lantern's gonna zap you with something other than a power ring. And Barry thinks, a 45 automatic. Those, these two mean business. The young dealer freaks out and just hands over the issue. Whatever you want, it's yours. My cash box is under the... Keep your change, kid. This is what we want. Mm -hmm. Flash number 26, armed robbery for a single comic book? Now the Golden Age thieves take their leave and tell the kid to keep his yap shut. They also uh, decide to take that Flash fanatic hostage, so Barry is with him, <laughs> with them. Uh, now Barry's spidey sense starts to tingle, which, I mean, at this point he's got a gun pressed up against his back. So he, he knows something is off. Something is. But weird. something's up. Yeah. 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 Uh, but he thinks to himself, part of the puzzle is clearing up. Is it though? There's something very special about Flash number 26. No kidding. That dynamited damn chapter of Les Sparks Radio Amateur is an absolute oh, it's, barn burner. It's great. <laughs> now, once they make it to a deserted hallway, Barry speeds away, ducking into an elevator. Yeah, the Green Lantern says, Hey, he's ducking into that elevator. Wow, did you ever see anybody jump like that? He must have been so scared his adrenaline was pumping overtime. Oh, I knew who needs them. We got the Flash comic, right? So let's split and find the boss. I mean, honestly, who needed him in the first? Why'd you even kidnap him? I was, that was not it very clear. Yeah, hostages <laughs> usually have a reason, right? It, it really, don't you shouldn't add that to your crime if you can help it. <laughs> that's I, that's not a good idea. Uh, inside the elevator, Barry is joined by a pair of young comics enthusiasts who are so engrossed in the issue they're reading they don't notice him change into his Flash costume. Yeah, one of them goes, Hey, mister, you're gonna be disqualified from the costume parade. And the other says, the demon, is, the demon is gone as Golden Age superheroes, not present-day real heroes. You're wearing the wrong Flash costume. Wah, wah. Uh, that in the elevator finally comes to a stop, and Barry speeds out the door. We yo look at him go. Gosh, he, he must have been the Flash, for real, and we didn't even get his autograph. The Flash runs out a window and down the side of a building just as the Golden Ages getaway cab is pulling out. Who do these geeks work for? That they, they, They've got to take a cab away from a crime scene? I, I sure hope they could, you know, they could put the receipts out and get the money back, you know what I mean? Yeah, they, they hope they have expense accounts, yeah. Something like that. The Lantern says, 
<sighs> I can't wait to ditch this dumb costume. Walking around looking like Green Lantern isn't exactly my idea of a good time. Yeah? How do you think I feel dressed up in a crummy cat suit? Well, we all have our fetishes. We're not going to judge mm. anybody that's into that. <laughs> now, Barry catches up to the cab, and he vibrates right on inside. And how do you think I feel, sitting between two crooked creeps like you? The Flash then slams both baddies out of the moving car, like, like he hits them while his arms are vibrating, which causes them to vibrate right through the car doors. Huh? I, I don't understand it, but we'll let Julia Schwartz explain. So incredible is the monarch of motion, he can create vibration frequencies swift enough to let objects pass through each other's harmlessly. That works for me. Sure. Uh, now, now, uh, Barry proceeds to comically beat the hell out of the Golden Agers. Like, he's spinning them over his head. Yeah. Like, they, they look like, like Michelangelo's nunchucks. He's just swinging <laughs> them around. He's doing a regular spectacle of it, for sure. Yep. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, the cabbie realizes that, hey, those costume goofs left a copy of Flash Comics number 26 on the seat. An old Flash comic. Just like the ones I read when I was a kid. It'll bring back old times to leaf through it. Then the poor cabbie finds himself staring down the business end of a pistol. The guy with a gun says, Don't start a comic, you'll never finish. Wow, if only this guy talked to Kevin Smith 15 years ago. I gotta, I gotta say, the guy with the gun policy is, I like it. I gotta, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, <laughs> some of these people could use a guy with the gun. Uh, after Flash KO's Green Lantern and Wildcat, the cabbie rushes over his way. So I gave it to him. Never even got a look at his face. I wasn't going to risk my neck for a crummy Flash comic. Er, er, no offense. Barry thinks to himself, Flash number 26 slips through my fingers for a third time. Yeah, never mind the fact that this poor cabbie almost had his brains blown out for it, right? That was incidental. We don't, you know. <laughs> You've got to break a few eggs. Uh, now, uh, <coughs> so now, now, how about we find out what all this hubbub is over Flash Twenty Six? Uh, we're gonna, we're gonna try to figure this out. Now. So you know, it's not the Army Life of Riley featuring Fuller Fun and an All Star cast feature inside there. No, no, it's not that one. Could it be the six-page The Whip plays Santa story? As excellent as that sounds, no, no, we'll, we'll just let the bad guy spill the beans. So uh, we're going to shift over to a room full of men in suits. There's also like a meathead bodyguard there, too. Just kind of right, lurking on the fringes here. <laughs> the guy says, here it is, gentlemen. Finally, flash number 26. It may look like an ordinary comic book, but I assure you it's much, much more. No doubt you're wondering what a comic book has to do with Formula XCV4. You might even be wondering just what in the world Formula XCV4 even is. I know I am. Which is why the three major crime syndicates have sent your representatives here, each determined to outbid the others for the formula. Now, the quick and dirty of this is Formula XCV4 has to do with telepathic teleportation. Oh. Uh, and the reason that it's on a comic book is because its creator, Professor Philip Denton, the late Professor Philip Denton, used his son for testing it. Denton had conducted several experiments with Formula XCV, involving his 15-year-old son. He needed an object the boy could easily concentrate on, so he chose a comic book from the kid's room. 15 years old, eh? Uh... Huh. Uh, just imagine what other sort of mag we might have been chasing around Central City all day, huh? Yeah, I'll tell you what, what, what magazine I might have been concentrating on. It would have been the Flash 26 when I was 15. Uh, first, he sprayed, X, he sprayed XCV over the comic, then sent his son miles away with instructions to concentrate on the Flash comic at a pre-chosen time. It worked, time and time again. Wherever the boy was... All he had to do was think hard about the Flash, and presto, the comic would always materialize in front of him. He continues. But one day, the issue disappeared, and the son couldn't think it back. Denton figured that some other kid must have been thinking about the Flash even harder, so the comic must have (laughs) teleported to him. We tried it, but it didn't work for us. Maybe because we didn't really care about the comic. And so... We began a statewide search and hunted down all existing copies of Flash number 26, checking out every comic convention, placing ads in collectors' fanzines. 
nice mention of fanzines there. And uh, we even get to see the ad, which reads, Wanted, Flash number 26. We'll buy in any condition. We'll pay triple the market price. Please contact Mr. D, P.O. Box 56. You think that was Philip Drummond from Different Strokes? Who, uh... I think so, yeah. You know, so. what, what, what I, I, I guess, again, I love about this uh, mystery of the uh, runaway comic here that they invited us to solve with them is that it was literally impossible for yeah. us to even come close to solving no way. There was yeah. no way we were going to guess <laughs> no it. it was yep. treated with a teleportation chemical. But anyway, uh, <laughs> so they have finally found the XCV-treated copy, which could, in theory, be reverse-engineered to create more of the formula, making stealing things quite easy for the highest bidder, anyway. And no sooner does the bidding begin than the comic vanishes and the Flash runs in. Yeah, one of the bidders goes, Yipes! It's the Flash! And he's got the comic book! The baddies all take aim and fire all over the room, hoping to hit the Flash, but, you know, that never works. Ever, ever. So the Flash saves the day. He does, and we wrap up back in Barry's den, where he's once again hanging out with his preteen neighbor. Yeah, he says... So once the Flash figured out the telepathic Flash fan link connecting all the disappearances of Flash number 26... Wait, wait, he did? What? Where, where were we when this happened? I don't recall that happening at all. <laughs> all he had to do was concentrate and make the comic teleport to him. Sure, Mr. Allen. Just like you unwittingly teleported it from my house to yours. Yeah, that's awfully convenient there. The old, I just wanted it more than you at the moment. That's it. <laughs> uh, right, Barty. Then Flash followed the faint teleportation trail back to the source, and it led him straight to the crooks. Barry hands a copy of Flash Comics number 26 over to Barney. But how did you ever get my Flash comic back? Didn't the police want to keep it because of the formula? And Barry, who now also has a copy of Flash number 26, says, They did keep it for analysis. This copy and the one I gave you came from the scores of other Flash number 26s the crooks bought. They don't need them anymore. Wow! Now we both have copies in mint condition. This is what I call a happy ending. Yeah, now you can do that thing where you fold the bottom left corner in the cover <laughs> and you can tell it's yours and reduce yep. it to good condition at best. Also, a real collector would have been like, you should have grabbed them all. What's wrong with you? <laughs> right? You know? We can flip these. <laughs> could have been, we could have flipped these in a minute. People are crazy. <laughs> no one has a copy. Uh, yeah, so that is the uh, end of uh, the Flash number 268. 68. Yes. Uh, I, I think that's a really fun issue. and uh, It is, yeah. It, it's, it's just a sort of a fun time at DC Comics where you see I see a lot of stories that have like, uh, Silver Age-ish trappings with Bronze mm-hmm. Age-ish storytelling. I don't know if I can, that makes any sense, but that's, no, it totally does. It's, yeah, it's this uh, falls in that purview, and I had a good time. Yeah, We're the bait and switch break. cover was uh, the bait and switch cover is kind of silly though. Yeah, like you have this, this oh, Green yeah. Lantern using constructs. It's right, like, right, yeah, it's well, just you know, a dude. Only, only in the uh, in the imagination of uh, you know the child or whatever. But yeah, the, yes, a little bit, of, a little bit of a uh, a switcheroo there. But Certainly. we're gonna take a little break. We're gonna look through our comic collections. We're gonna come back. We're gonna talk about the Flash number twenty six and a little bit about the history of cosplay. <laughs> And welcome to the fantasy world of comic books, a world of limitless imagination created by a unique and gifted group of artists and writers. Join me in a fascinating look at this art form. We'll cover the history of comics and give you an insider's view of the pleasures and the profits of comic book collecting. We'll see how the growing popularity of comics and comic collecting has created the need for dealers, price guides, and conventions. And of course, we're going to talk to the dude, Steve Rude illustrator of Nexus and Space Ghost, and we'll look at some of the classic comic books of all time. Okay, the mystery's been solved. We found Flash number 26, so uh, 
How about we uh, how about we find out what the big deal is with Flash number 26, uh, you know, one that isn't covered in right. uh, telepathic teleportation goo. <laughs> we don't uh, think it is, at least. I don't know. <laughs> we don't know. Now, as far as we can tell, there really isn't a big deal with this one. Um, we don't know if maybe the issue might have been important to Carrie Bates. Maybe it's one that he remembers fondly. Maybe yeah. it was his first one. Or, and this is what I'm leaning towards. Maybe it was chosen because of its very, very easy to recognize and duplicate, um, you know, a bunch of times in an issue cover, mm-hmm. which was uh, drawn by Everett E. Hibbard. Now, the cover is basically just Jay Garrick Flash running toward the reader, kicking up a boatload of dust along the way. So it's probably very easy just to duplicate that one little image over and over again. Over and the over. Issue that you just read. Yeah. Plus, it's clearly the, the titular character. So it's Absolutely. Like, we know what Absolutely. comic it is. But I, it would be interesting to know if, if this actually was like. A special issue to carry Bates for some mm-hmm. reason. Uh, the issue itself featured many stories, as so many Golden Age comics did. A lot of them were anthologies. Uh, the title story was, you know, Flash, The Prince and the Head Waiter by Gardner Fox and Everett E. Hibbard. And in this story, the Prince of India is nearly kidnapped, and Jay rescues him and escorts him home. They have to take a boat and ride an elephant. You know, Barry probably would just ran him home, right? Yeah, you can't fill a hundred pages that way, though. Dude, it was like it was like twelve pages. Felt like a hundred. <laughs> yeah, it sure did. <laughs> wow. Snoozer. It was. Our next story, speaking of snoozers, is Johnny Thunder, Johnny's Delivery Service. This is by John B. Wentworth and Stan Ackmeyer. Ackmeyer. Uh, now John starts well a delivery service, and uh, he doesn't realize that his T bolt could probably do the job much better, much quicker. Um, I'm not sure if boat trips were just like a sign of the times at this point, but there's a boat trip in this one too. Yeah. And uh, Johnny even gets chucked over, <laughs> off, over the, the overboard into the drink for a bit. Maybe as the comics industry was, uh, you know, heating up, people were buying boats, and that was Maybe. it. Just became a thing. <laughs> uh, next story is Les Sparks, radio amateur. Story titled "The Dynamited Dam" by Don Cameron. This features a mildly offensive uh, Asian character, Sing Lee, and Mm -hmm. several instances of people jumping onto each other's backs as though they were monkeys playing at the zoo. Les Sparks used his power of uh, amateur radioing to stop the Mm -hmm. dam from being dynamited. Uh, (laughs) The feature ends with hints from the ham shack panel. Uh, Amateur radio is also known as ham radio, with ham meant as a pejorative term. Uh, It was used somewhat interchangeably with the term plug, to describe a radio amateurs who lacked ability or had ham-fisted skills. So that's where it comes from. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we ever do a long-form Less Sparks episode, we'll go deeper into this both fascinating and dull subject. It's kind of it's true. funny that way. There are parts of it that are really interesting, but then the basics of it are just a guy sitting in a radio. That's it. <laughs> uh, back to the ham shack. Yeah, Les goes, Hi, boys and girls, here's something new. I'm starting a panel for all live wire youngsters to take to, that like to experiment. Hmm. Yeah, live wire youngsters that like to experiment. I don't know if you want to start no. the. Uh, uh, that might be a different uh, classified ad. That I'll never uh, land that, I don't know. Write <laughs> <laughs> me and tell, you, tell me how you like it. This panel includes the Continental Code, which we know is Morse code, and simple plans for a transmitter. Like, simple plans to build a transmitter with, like, batteries and wire and little buttons and stuff. This seems like the thing that the crooks would want, right? You know, like... Right? If this was what the bad guys were after in Flash 268, it makes sense. <laughs> it's like weird. We, we just need to find a way to communicate. Yeah. Uh, that finishes less, less... What's his name? Less Sparks. And we jump to The King in Railroad Rogues by Gardner Fox and Harry Lampett. Now, the king is a very well-dressed, masked, and caped vigilante. Um, he looks like he might be headed to either the opera or maybe one of them eyes-wide-shut parties. I don't mm-hmm. know. Uh, now, as the title implies, the story features him uh, you know, fighting on a train. All right. That's uh, exciting. It's dull. Yeah. Uh, next story, we, we mentioned this story before as being very intriguing, and we'll oh, see yes. how very captivating it is. <laughs> It's a whip in The Whip Plays Santa by John B. Wentworth, 877-CASH, no, sorry, uh, and uh, Homer Fleming. Uh, here, The Whip looks like a mix of the Lone Ranger and one of the Three Amigos, and uh, he carries a whip. He does. Uh, in the story, two men fight over a banana, and The Whip dresses like Santa Claus. 
Yeah, I, I shared the panels of the men fighting over a banana yesterday on on Twitter, so they're around. Go oh, <laughs> check that out if you if you want to see the uh, great stuff over here. The thrilling yeah. <laughs> fight over the banana. Uh, we go from there into the cloud of death. A Jack Raymond story by Evelyn Gaines. This is a uh, text story, which we will ignore. Um, <laughs> As always. <laughs> we have The Army Life of Riley by Ed Whalen. And uh, in it, the balloon-faced Private Riley gets promoted to Corporal Riley. And uh, it's an absolutely painful story. It is so dull. Yeah, that's a hallmark. Uh, the truth about a lot of these Golden Age books, but that's what you're going to do. Uh, and the final story is Hawkman, Argot and Iago, or Argo and Iago, sorry, uh, <laughs> by Gardner Fox and Sheldon Moldoff. In this, Hawkman and Hawkwoman get captured, and then they're saved by a bird. That's what happens, and yeah. uh, wow, you sure get a lot for a dime, don't you? A lot of what, though, Chris? You gotta ask yeah, yourself. I mean, you basically shut the kid up for like an hour, tops, maybe two hours. <laughs> Oh, uh, well, so that that's that issue. Um, so we won't be covering that in a future episode of Gossip <laughs> Treadmill. We just did. We just covered it. You got two You got two comics for the price of one. Uh, but we are going to talk a little bit about cosplay. Uh, in Flash number 268, there was a discussion of a costume parade. And considering that comic conventions have become the premier place to show off your fandom-themed costumes, we figured this might be a good time to explore the history of the subject. Of course, wearing costumes or disguises is nothing at all new, or specific to comics or comic fandom or any kind of fandom, really. Nope. Uh, masquerade balls have been held dating back centuries. An early example was uh, the Bal de Sauvages held in Paris, France, on January 28, 1393, to celebrate a royal wedding. The king and some courtiers dressed as wild men of the woods. The Bal de Sauvages quickly became the Bal de Ardents. Which I did ruin that somehow, but it uh, translates <laughs> to the burning men's ball, <laughs> where several of the courtiers accidentally danced into a torch, and four of them would die. You know, you got to be serious about your art. You do, you do. Uh, <laughs> now, masquerade balls would remain popular throughout Europe and would grow to become less private affairs for the well-to-do and more of a public spectacle, a public celebration. One of those is the Carnival of Venice. That's a party wherein Venetians wear masks. This is a tradition dating back to the 13th century where young men would don masks and throw hollowed-out eggs filled with perfumed water at girls they admired. Ooh. Or maybe sometimes things like ink, because uh, as former young men, uh, we know that young men could be jerks. They could be jerks, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Indeed, the carnival was uh, could be an episode unto itself. Uh, of a different program, most likely. Yeah. Because, I mean, we could talk about things like the plague doctor's masks, Zanny masks. Suffice it to say, there is a rich history to the mask tradition. Big, oh, for sure. I mean, we, this doesn't even get into, like, tribal culture and stuff like exactly. that. Exactly. a whole yeah. other level. Uh, but fast-forwarding closer to the present, costume parties would become popular in the 19th century, and they're still pretty popular today. As it pertains to fandom costuming, however, we'd have to look at Mr. Skygak from Mars. Uh, that was a comic strip created by A.D. Kondo, which ran from 1907 to 1917, mostly in the Chicago Daybook. It would eventually be syndicated nationally. Yeah, it's considered to be the first science fiction comic strip, and uh, Skygak is sometimes considered the first alien character hmm. to ever be uh, created in a, in a comic strip here. Um, now, Armundo Dreisbach, that's A.D. Kondo, he was born September 19th, 1872, past August 20, 24th, 1956. He was a printing apprentice turned cartoonist who's uh, best known for the outbursts of Everett True. Okay. We, we don't know either. Yeah, I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now, the Chicago Daybook, where the uh, where these strips ran, was an experimental advertising-free daily newspaper. And that ran from 1911 to 1917. Circulation for this paper would peak at 22,839 subscribers, which fell below the 30,000 needed to keep the magazine, the, the newspaper self-sustaining. Well, just below the, well, too bad. Mm. Uh, Mr. Skygag from Mars was a strange-looking alien fellow with an oblong head. His eyes were at the bottom of his head, and the top of his head was covered with a spattering of tiny hairs. The gimmick is... Skygax on a mission from Mars to study humans and comical misunderstandings abound. And Mr. Kondo had plenty of opportunity to comment on and criticize social norms of the day. 
Mm-hmm. Now, not only was Mr. Skygag from Mars the first ever sci-fi comic, he was also the subject of the first ever sci-fi cosplay. Indeed, uh, pardon the conflicting reports here. We have uh, got a couple that are you know jumping between uh, years. Mm. Uh, in 1908, a Mr. William Fell of Cincinnati, Ohio, would attend a masquerade party held at a skating rink, dressed as Mr. Skygag. His wife would dress as Diana Dillpickles, who was another AD condo created comic strip character. He had a real knack for naming characters, this condo. He sure did. Oh, yeah, he had some. <laughs> uh, in 1910, an August Olson of Monroe, Washington, would win first prize in a costume contest by dressing as Skygack. He'd wear the costume in public, which actually resulted in him getting arrested for masquerading in public. Uh, he was bailed out for 10 bucks. We'll include a picture of an early Skygag costume on the site so you know what uh, this character looked like. Exactly what it is, yes. Now, the first time fans would wear costumes at a fandom convention was actually during one of the very first, the first World Science Fiction Convention that was held from July 2nd to 4th, 1939, held in Caravan Hall in New York in conjunction with the World's Fair. Now, this is Myrtle Rebecca Douglas... uh, This is all one name here. Myrtle Rebecca Douglas Smith Gray Noel. Wow. And uh, and Forrest J. Ackerman, they would arrive to this convention dressed in... Deadpool and Harley Quinn costumes? Oh, not yet. No, we're not doing that yet. But <laughs> they were actually uh, dressed in, it is all one word, futuristic costumes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they were based on the artwork of pulp artist Frank R. Paul and the 1936 film Things to Come. Now, Ackerman was quoted in Deborah Palmer's Fari, The Life of Forrest J. Ackerman from 2010, as saying he was certain that everyone in attendance would be in costume, and he was pretty surprised that only he and Myrtle were. Uh, and we'll post a picture of those futuristic costumes on the site as well. I love that. Like, just sci-fi at the time, they love to condense words and make things yep. like, you know, this was new speak, I guess. But it's not like they, it's not like a portmanteau. It's no. just like, we'll just cram them together. We just drop the C from, you know, just, just <laughs> right. slam the C's together. Uh, <laughs> Let's take a step back and meet our cosplayers here. There's Myrtle, also known as Morojo or Morojo, was from Los Angeles, California, and was a sci-fi fanzine publisher. Voice of the Imagination was one she was heavily involved with. with. That was a uh, fanzine. Mm-hmm. Though Guteto, who uh, lived from 1940... Oh, the, uh, sorry. Azeed Guteto from 1941 to 1958 for the Fantasy Amateur Press Association would be her zine, typically. She, along with her niece, Patty Pogo Gray, would create the first ever all-female zine, Pogo's STF-ETTE. Uh, she'd also serve as treasurer for the Los Angeles Science Fiction Society. From her extremely long name, you might be able to tell that she had been married several times throughout her life and decided to drop none of those names for some reason. She, she was a pack rat of uh, last names. So yeah. she, <laughs> she liked to collect them. Uh, now, we'll go, jumping over to Ackerman, um, he was also based in Los Angeles, and uh, professionally, he was a literary agent. He represented many notable science fiction authors, including Ray Bradbury, Isaac Asimov, and L. Ron Hubbard. He was the editor editor and writer for the Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine, and he would actually even go into acting. He would show up in Michael Jackson's Thriller music video. Wow. All the way later. Crazy. and, and really, there's a whole lot we could say about Forrest. Uh, I mean, there's even been a documentary made about him called The Ecker Monster Chronicles. That was in 2013 by Jason V. Brock. Yeah, he was a, a contemporary of uh, Weisinger and uh, Schwartz when they were agents. Yep. They were all mm-hmm. part of that same sci-fi scene. So Absolutely. Uh, on to their inspiration, uh, Frank Rudolph Paul, born April 18th, 1884, and passed June 29th, 1963, was a pulp artist who had painted 38 covers for Amazing Stories, including the most famous issue from August 1927, which included the serial reprint of H.G. Wells' The War of the Worlds. Paul would do covers for many sci-fi mags, though we know, might know him best from the, as the cover artist for Marvel Comics Number 1, with an October 1939 cover date. Paul had an award named in his honor from 1976 to 1996 by the Nashville Science Fiction Association. Things to Come was a 1936 film based on a 1933 H.G. Wells novel called The Shape of Things to Come. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a lot about like uh, biplanes in England or something. I, I, I've, I've seen this movie, actually. It's, it's, a, okay. it's a somewhat surreal movie but it's it's a futurist movie uh mm-hmm. it's it's pretty if you if you like 
old movie. I think it's a silent movie. I'm almost positive, but uh, it's a good movie. Probably. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Now, we're going to jump ahead one year to 1940s Second World Science Fiction Convention that they called Second World Con. This was held at the Hotel Chicagoan in Chicago, Illinois, on September 1st and 2nd, 1940. Now, it's here that fan costuming would become a thing, with both an official masquerade and an unofficial Morojo-run masquerade occurring in her uh, in their hotel room. Uh, now, the winning costume was of Ming the Merciless from the Flash Gordon strip, won by David Kyle. Now, Kyle, born February 14th, 1919, past September 18th, 2016, was an original member of the Futurians. This was an organized group of sci-fi fans based in New York City. In 1936, Kyle would publish The Fantasy World, which is considered by most to be the first ever comic book fanzine. Now, Kyle wasn't always keen on Worldcon, and he would write some scathing words criticizing its organizers. This would lead to some Futurians getting banned from attending. He'd actually go on to become one of Worldcon's fans' guest of honor, though, in 1983, so that's all water and All worked out, yep. Uh, Jumping ahead to those early 1980s were some rules needed to be established for fan costuming. You see, back in 1952, the first nude contestant joined the fan masquerade. While that was a novelty at the start, during the 1970s, more and more folks would arrive sans clothes. That was sort of a thing at the time. It was. This led to the no costume equals no costume rule being passed, banning full nudity. Though partial nudity was still cool, as long as it still represented whatever character the contestant was trying to dress up as. Fair enough. Uh, interestingly, another rule had to be passed banning food, odious, and messy substances from being elements of fan costumes, because Scott Shaw of Captain Carrot fame once arrived completely covered in peanut butter. You see, he was cosplaying as his own underground comics character, the turd. Oh. Yeah, now, as you might imagine, a fella covered in peanut butter might make a little bit of a mess, yeah. and, uh, you know, under those lights, Probably started to stink a bit. Cook even, you know. Yeah, that's a long day, isn't it? (laughs) Uh, Now, in January 1983, the first ever convention dedicated to costuming was held. That was called Costume Con. Costume Con, even. Uh, This came out of a germ of an idea for a convention called Costume Mania, which had been advertised as early back as 1979 in Megamont Magazine. Costume Mania was created by Adrian Martin Barnes, who had costumed for the Society of Creative Anachronism in several sci-fi conventions, which never actually came to pass due to a perceived lack of interest. Jumping ahead to Worldcon 1981 in Denver, Colorado, where the masquerade contest had evolved to include tears in judging, and among the panels available to fans was one demonstrating how masquerade costumes were made, which got many wheels to spin in. The uh, initial costume con was a success, drawing nearly 200 members, which met their expectations. The costume con uh, in and of itself is a pretty huge subject, and the convention is still going strong. They're now accepting bids for costume con number 41, which is happening in 2023. Yep, so they're all set. They're they're set to go forward with this. So uh, more information can be found at costume-con.org, which we will link to in our notes. Yes, and uh, I think we've used it a few times, but they've never used the term cosplay yet. Uh, So what about cosplay? Let's get into it. Nobuyuki Takahashi would attend the 42nd World Con that was held in the Anaheim Hilton in Anaheim, California, from August 30th to September 3rd, 1984. Now, it turns out he was a big fan of the costume masquerade, and he was reporting for My Anime Magazine. In his piece, he he would coin the term cosplay, which, you know, when you anglicized, becomes cosplay. Wow. Now, uh, while, while fan costuming had been a staple of the Japanese fandom scene since the 70s, it would become far more popular following Takahashi's piece. I mean, into the 1990s in the Akihabara district of Tokyo, cosplay cafes and maid cafes would open, so there were places all year round where you could go in costume Just- and... Yeah, and, and, yeah. And, and be served by people in costume. Be served right? by Every, maids, yeah. Everyone's in costume. Uh, yeah, that's a whole different uh, costume-accepting culture over there. It is. Uh, the first World Cosplay Summit would take place on October 12th, 2003 at the Rose Court Hotel in Nagoya, Japan. This was organized by the Aichi Television Broadcasting Company. The World Cosplay Summit would be incorporated as a separate entity in 2012. 
It has grown from a weekend event to a week-long festivity, incorporating different areas of Japan with full support from the Japanese Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Ministry of Land, Infrastructure and Transport, uh, infrastructure and transport. I'm, I'm butchering this thing. <laughs> the, the full title, the Japanese Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Ministry of Land, Infrastructure and Transport, and the Ministry of the Economy, Trade, and Industry have all supported cosplay. So mm-hmm. it's a pretty big deal, folks. It's, uh, it is. They, they take it serious. And, you know, it's a big deal over here, too, Chris. Uh, it is. At all the conventions, it's every year, I'm you know, whenever I see... People cosplaying, I'm blown away by some of these things that they pull off. Oh, the amount of work they put into it's, them? It sure. really is uh, staggering. Like, wow, just to walk around a convention sometimes. I'm like, wow, you did a lot there. You know, we, we, have, these, uh, we have these DC Universe shows, like TV shows now, like Doom Patrol and Titans. Yeah. And they look they look poor compared to some of the cosplay. I would agree with that, that. I, that I've I, seen. Yeah, for I, sure. I agree. Some of these some of these uh, costumes look like they're ready to go out into the field and uh, absolutely get, get and busy. fight crime. Yeah. Uh, but I'm, I, I gotta I just mentioned one. I remember there were these uh, two guys saw at a convention. They were dressed up as uh, two transformers, but they were using. Uh, stilts, or I think they were using large romper stompers. You know what those are? With like, wild, yeah. Where you're uh-huh. on coffee can- so basically, they were like eight feet tall and moved, and like it, the whole thing, it just worked out really well. It's super memorable. So uh, I'm in support of it. I've heard, you know, sure. Others feel a different way, but I say keep on cosplaying. Yeah, but just realize there are more characters than Harley Quinn. And there Deadpool. are a few more. Yeah, yeah it's there are a couple more in the comics. Uh, in the comics world, yes. we've seen it. Okay, folks, we can, <laughs> we can move on from that. Now, now that's pretty much just like a, a an inch deep, mile wide look at cosplay. Because yeah. I mean, this is a huge, huge subject, and uh, really, it's probably there are people more qualified to discuss it and analyze it than we. So uh, we just wanted to give like the quick and dirty beats yeah. of it. Uh, give a little bit of the history, like we are want to do over here. Um, now we'll wrap up today with uh, a little bit of mail. We're uh, we're actually getting current with the mail. This one's only two weeks old, so that's good. This is from our friend Jeremiah. It came on March fifteenth, twenty nineteen. It's titled "Mother Panic Slash Awful Comment Slash Hot Takes." He says, Chris, I finished listening to the latest episode of your solo podcast. I thought it was another excellent episode. I very much enjoy the personal stories you share, especially when you talk about the writing on the blog. Now, this was about uh, a a Mother Panic review I did on a different site. This mm. is a, a weird science uh, site that prompted a lot of clapback on my own personal site. Uh, a lot of very uh, angry and uh, hot language mm. uh, directed at me, and I was called every ist in the book, and I was a gatekeeper and all this, all wow. this nasty all stuff. Right. Uh, it led to me actually putting, moderating my comments, which was... Uh, Basically the gist of the episode. Uh, and now Jeremiah continues, and he says, I wanted to mention that I really enjoyed the hot takes. It is wicked interesting to go back in time and see what people thought of old comics at the time they were coming out. I like reading old letter columns, editorials, and things like Stan's Soapbox. They could provide some really interesting context and insight into the comic and the time it was published. Personally, I hope you keep the segment in future episodes. And uh, it's just a little thing I'm doing where it's something I wanted to do uh, I didn't know where I was going to put it, but I, I, I've been doing the Action Comics Weekly on the blog every mm. day. And uh, and part of uh, every other week, they alternate with letters columns. They'll do like an editorial one week, and then they'll do letters columns the next. Mm. And something that was really interesting to me was that they sent out black and white photostatted copies of Action Comics six, uh, Weekly 601 before the book hit the stands, like months before the book hit the stands. And they were they were filling in their letters column with people reacting to the photostats. So it was current, so yeah. Yeah, so it was like brand new, and uh, people didn't know what direction Action Comics was going at the time. So it was a lot, like a lot of nebulousness there. And uh, the the hot takes these people had were very interesting, and they were very varied as well. Going from like, oh, I'm all in, I love this, to, guys, what are you doing with Action Comics? You're killing it. Uh-huh. To uh, we have that thing where like you give anybody the option to give you advice, and they give you the most boilerplate, trite advice in sure. the world. So it's yes. like they had like people going in like, 
well, I tell you what, DC, if you write good stories, it'll be okay. Right. It's like, well, really, really. <laughs> Thank no, you for the breaking advice. Breaking news. Breaking news. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> it's just something I've been throwing in at the end of the show. It's uh, It was meant to be like a five-minute thing, but it's turned into like a half-hour thing. Uh, but, hey, that's how it always You know, it's a little bit. And I'll be digging into like Usenet and other things later on. Uh, Jeremiah concludes with, um, I think it would be very interesting to see some of the Wizard or Heroes Illustrated hot takes if you do a 90s book in a future episode. And count on it. Yeah, <laughs> They'll be in there for sure because those are uh, those are a little bit uh, – that's like a whole different generation of fans coming in at that point. Mm. Where like the 80s fans – it's like it feels like 80s fans are more like ingrained. Like they were around longer, at least the letter writing ones. Yeah. Where the letters writers of the 90s seem like they might be brand new. Like coming in with I think you are getting some brand new and, and, and yeah, like, you know, uh, it's like comics journal versus wizard type of attitude. Absolutely, you know? absolutely. Uh, looking at it academically as as opposed to what's awesome, you know. Yeah, which one has the most blood? Come on. <laughs> by the way, yeah, by so... the way, uh, the show we're referring to here is a show Chris does every other Wednesday. Chris is on yes. Infinite Earths. Uh, it's on the regular podcast feed. If you haven't mm-hmm. been listening to it, that's where Chris goes over. An old blog post, really, in this case, yep. from a different site, but an old blog post and <laughs> kind of talks about things around it, the process, uh, his thoughts about it. It's really interesting if you're if you're interested in stuff like process. I know I am. Uh, and if you if you run a daily blog or a blog that you even update frequently, you'll definitely get a lot of commiseration. You'll feel a lot of familiar, <laughs> uh, you know, problems that you can run into when trying to keep that going. So. Uh, definitely check that out. That's every other Wednesday. I'm on the other Wednesday. I kind of do a similar but different type of thing. Certainly. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much for the uh, letter, Jeremiah. And uh, there will be more hot takes. And uh, and I'm even I might be soliciting uh, hot takes from people too. If uh, yeah, like uh, I'm talking to a fella now who who's new to comics. Uh, this is a. Uh, this is Patrick Kotenberg. He was a guest when I discussed Rebirth number one, mm-hmm. and he's like pretty new to DC. And uh, I figured I could get his hot take on things like, you know, what were your thoughts when they announced that Batman and Catwoman were going to get married? Because right. that certainly was going one way and went another. But uh, I, 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 I would is... love to know what someone new to the, to the characters would even think exactly about that. like oh yeah. okay that's nice you know or uh, maybe he thought it was great i don't know but uh sure yeah or, or if he think thought it was gonna happen the whole way or if he saw it and was like nope that's never gonna happen so I, I, that's kind of thing i like to uh i like to un- unfold you had a few interesting guests on your show i'm telling you it really it really yeah. is a good time it's a little peek behind the curtain kind of into uh chris's personality and uh yeah if you're if you're already on board with cosmic treadmill there's no reason you shouldn't just keep walking down that road folks <laughs> And listen to Chris's on Infinite Earths. Uh, but if you want to write to us about Chris on Infinite Earths, or write to us about this issue of Flash or cosplay, or if you are a cosplayer and you want to share your experience with us, please write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. We do have a Patreon where we have at least three exclusive shows a month, and plus when you sign up, you get a free enamel pin over at patreon.com slash Reggie. Indeed, and uh, we're actually doing a little slideshow of the folks sharing our uh, our pins. Right. They, they and, are uh, they are getting them, so that they are getting it's a them. Real and, thing. And I, I had to update the slideshow twice this week, so know, uh, it's cool. it's all good. Love it. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com/slash/cosmicteamailhistory. We are also on Instagram at cosmicteamail. Same thing on Twitter at cosmicteamail, and I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. You can see our weekly writings on current DC Comics over at WeirdScienceDCComics.com, and you can see Chris's daily examination currently of Action Comics Weekly happening at Chris'sInfiniteEarths.com every single day. You're looking at another uh, chapter. chapter of the of the book, uh, and that rounds out the week. You could even vote for what your favorite one was at the end of the Absolutely. week. So com. go check it out. Yeah, we're about a quarter of the way through the run already. Wow. Which is, uh, wild. Yeah, this is like a 250-day-long <laughs> project, but we're about a quarter of the way through. It's pretty wild. Uh, you can uh, find our show site, chrisandreggie.com, where you'll be able to find all of our show notes, all of our shows, uh, and uh, the glossary of our shows in chronological order, so you can follow along the way it was meant to be. 
And uh, you can, while you're there, you can click on the banner link for 80stees.com. Get yourself a shirt. It's starting to cool down. Yeah. I mean, warm up, right? Where are we? Depends where you are in the world, but for a lot of us, it's warming up, Chris. That's all right. It is. It is. So you can, you're going to be, you know, be packing the, uh, the sweaters away in the moth balls. Mm -hmm. Get some t-shirts. Go to 80stees.com. You're helping them. You're helping us. You're helping yourself. And it'll be a good thing all around. Yeah, they got some cool designs over there if you're into those uh, printed type tees with the comedy mm -hmm. jokes and the uh, throwback whatevers. Indeed. But uh, I think that's all we got from this week. Chris, got anything else for him? I think that's it. Well, until next time, folks, I want you to keep it on the treadmill with spirit gum. See ya. Hey.